Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 519, A Pigeon, Some Hyssop, and a Cedar Plank. This week, we'll see how Matthew is pointing us all the way back to the book of Leviticus while also pointing us forward to the work of the cross. We're also going to look at how radically inclusive this gospel is and how big Christ is on a cosmic scale. So now, let's get started on Matthew chapter 8. Hello, everyone. It's good to be back together. Um, this week, where I almost can't believe it, uh, part 19 in our study on Matthew's gospel. And uh, there's a real shift going to happen now. We have looked through the Sermon on the Mount almost verse by verse. I'm going to take sections uh, over the next few weeks. We've got this shift from from the words of Jesus to the actions of Jesus, and um, I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. But just before I do, because we really want to be uh, continuing to look to deeper meanings that uh, are in the Scripture, so I want to review something I shared with you many weeks ago now about three readings um, this, this goes all the way back to the church fathers and the early church, and it has continued on in many traditions. Three different ways or readings of, of the scripture. The first one we talked about was the literal meaning, which is what's the point or the truth that's being expressed. The second one is the moral meaning. What, what can I learn? How can I become more Christ-like through this? And the third is the, the spiritual, or we've, we've called it the water-to-wine reading, uh, which is a deeper meaning, uh, revealing more of the mystery of Christ. In fact, I just recently came across a quote from Origen, a church father, a early church father, uh, who, in terms of water-to-wine, said this, In truth, before Jesus, Scripture was like water, but since Jesus... It has become for us the wine into which Jesus changed the water. Um, so there it is, water to wine. So the challenge that we have as we're going through today, chapter 8, next week, chapter 9, is that we are in a very, very familiar passages. And, and it's so easy to, to gloss over meanings and nuances, uh, especially when we're in the familiar. But remember, I told you one of our key purposes in this whole series is learning to read the Scripture in a, in a deeper, uh, different kind of way. One of the, the books that uh, has been very helpful to me over this past year is uh, by uh, a French writer, uh, uh, Olivier Clement. And he said this, the divine meaning of the scriptures has to be gleaned from the letter of it and beyond the letter through contemplation guided by the spirit. In the fathers, we do not find a fundamentalism, but scripture opened by the spirit to its very heart, namely the mystery of the Trinity, the source of love and Christ's victory over death and hell, the triumph of love. I'm not even going to try to add to that. But I am going to tell you that in a few weeks from now, on uh, Tuesday, August the 10th, 
Tim and I are going to be talking with Brad Jerzak about, again, reading the scripture in these different levels. Uh, I, I think it's going to be about inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy. And uh, he's got much to say on this. Uh, I'll share with you at the end of this teaching about his latest book that just came out this week that uh, reflects some of what we will be hearing. Now, I told you early on that that we have been very impacted by the Enlightenment, what was called the Age of Reason, Uh, Age of Reason, which led to things like uh, the French Revolution and so forth. So I, I say that rather ironically. But, but, where that flowed into the church was we uh, there was an emphasis on the literal literalist meaning, and the Bible was seen as propositional truth. Uh, there was there was one correct meaning that needed to be found. Uh, this led to kind of black and white answers to every issue in life. I've heard I've heard from pulpits, and maybe you have too. The Bible has got the answer for every single issue. I think that is absolutely not true, um, because it's not an owner's manual. It's a love letter, and it's a love letter that reflects the depths of mystery. I'm going to give you a couple more origin quotes today. Uh, He said this, If you try to reduce the divine meaning of the purely external significance of the words— the word will have no reason to come down to you, word capitalized. It will return to its secret dwelling, which uh, is contemplation that is worthy of it. For it has wings, this divine meaning given to it by the Holy Spirit who is its guide. And then he says this, to be unwilling to rise above the letter, to never give up Feeding on the literal sense is the mark of a life of falsehood. Wow, those are strong words. And, and Origen was trying to awaken spiritual hunger in everyone who read his words. This, <clears throat> when I read this quote, I thought of, <coughs> excuse me, a well-known uh, prayer of Paul's in Ephesians 3. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. So that's some review and some contextualizing for everything we want to do today. So we come here into chapter 8, and we enter into two chapters that are focused on Jesus' healing miracles. This chapter is very carefully structured. Remember, I told you before, Matthew is not so much chronological as thematic. And so we see a progression coming along here. We we saw his teaching, and now we begin to see his activity, his actions, which reveal both Jesus' identity and his authority. So as we go through these passages, again, I want to remind us, um, keep in keep in mind the literal, the moral, and the spiritual reading or levels of understanding throughout this chapter. So let's start with verse 1 of chapter 8. When Jesus had come down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Um, 
We talked about at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount of, of the, the importance of setting and how Jesus went up the mountain. Remember that for the early church, the Gospel of Matthew was not just a historical narrative, but every part, every word, every phrase uh, was a, a revelation. It was chronicling revelation from the triune God. Um, and so every verse is part of God's intention to reveal, to disclose his purposes. You know, the church fathers approached every single text with the, the certainty of finding a great deal of God's revelation in that text. Uh, I've gathered these last few years quite a lot of the church fathers, and it is amazing how verse by verse by verse they're, they're gleaning and finding revelation. And that's part of the journey that we're on as a group here together. So he came down from the mountain. The mountain was key. As I said to you at the beginning of the sermon, um, the, the mountain represented uh, Jesus going up to the place of being a lawgiver like Moses did. Deuteronomy 18.15, the promise, I'm going to send you another prophet like unto me. But there were some significant differences between uh, Moses going up and coming down the mountain and Jesus. Uh, Moses went up alone. Uh, there, it was the, the whole reading is filled with great apprehension, even terror, actually, from the people. The severity of the law was given at Sinai, but now we're all invited. We're all welcomed. You see that the crowds were with him and stayed with him. This is Matthew's gospel. This is the shift that's beginning on this mountain from law to grace, from exclusion to inclusion. Um, it's the dawning of a, of a whole new age is what Matthew is getting at. And uh, it's going to touch the entire cosmos. So he's showing us here as the, as the throngs of people stayed with him and came down the mountain. I, I, I think we all picture it very joyously. They were amazed at his teaching, but they were filled with joy. They'd just been given such words of hope and power and authority. And so... In the midst of this, is in coming down, we we see this by its very nature, an inclusiveness. You know, when Moses came down the mountain, uh, the people were afraid. And every time he came down the mountain, it said they would stand in front of their tent and just in silence, just look at him. But here we see the crowds all around him, which is what it was like with Jesus. He was always surrounded by people. He was moved with compassion again and again and again. He always made room for them. And and this is apparent as we go through chapter 8 and 9. They weren't afraid of Jesus. So now we get to the first episode, the healing of the leper, verses 2 to 4. There was a leper who came to Jesus and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do choose. Be made clean. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, this episode, probably all of us have heard teaching on it. We've read it many, many, many times. But I want to point out five or six things that, that just kind of jump out to us because Matthew intended them to jump out to us. 
the leper is the first individual, the first specific recipient of Jesus' healing power. There's been reference in general in chapter 4 of him healing the multitudes, but this is the first one-to-one. Isn't it interesting that the first one is a total social outcast? In a Jewish way of thinking, a leper was cursed by God. They were outcast physically, socially. Imagine the pain of that. They weren't allowed to come within, some say 50, some say 100 meters of other people, and they had to call out unclean, unclean. Imagine the pain of that kind of rejection. And he was an outcast morally because obviously— this was God's judgment. And you know, I still encounter that today, especially as I do healing teaching. People say, well, well, maybe God's punishing the person. No, God doesn't punish us with sickness. That's the work of the enemy. We, we can talk more about that in a later session. So how significant that Matthew begins with this outcast. And the second thing that I see is he says to Jesus, he, he cries out, he says, you can make me clean. He had a total confidence in Jesus' ability to to heal him, but he wasn't sure if he wanted to, uh, to make him clean. If you're willing, you can make me clean. You know, I think this, this reflects that deep sense of rejection and unworthiness among the sick, among the outcast, I encounter this constantly when I'm in the developing world because we tend to go into refugee camps and and squatter places and beggars colonies etc and as I begin to share the love of Jesus again and again I hear oh no but I, I, I he couldn't love me and they give their reasons so we see here a deep sense of rejection um You know, Jesus said this. I was thinking about this just this morning. He said at a couple of different times to his disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware the the yeast of religion. Um, Because by its very nature, religion always is dualistic. There's them and us. There's in and out. He says, Watch out for that. So Jesus, or the the leper rather, said his confidence was that Jesus could do this. And then he said, you can make me clean. The Greek word is katharos, from which we get cathartic. And it means to uh, clean physically, to clean according to the law, uh, to be ethically pure, blameless, and unstained. So, when he says, you can make me clean, Matthew, who, who is intentional in every word and every verse, I believe even in that cry from the leper, he is pointing us ahead to the complete work of the cross. All of Scripture can only be understood through the context of the cross, all of it. Now, we'll, we'll talk a little more about that in the, in the weeks to come. Now, here is a fascinating thing. He said, Lord, Kyrios. This is the first time in the Gospels that Jesus is addressed as 
Lord as Kyrios. In the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which was the, the scriptures, the only scriptures that, that Jesus and the early church knew and used, uh, Kyrios is, is used over 7,000 times for Yahweh. And now he's using that very same word. This is incredibly significant, uh, in the journey that Matthew's taking us on. You see, it's an outcast, this social, physical, moral outcast who's the first one to recognize Jesus as Kyrios, as Lord. So, what we're seeing is the beginning of an unfolding revelation of Jesus' true identity. Um, I, I love that the climactic verse in John's gospel is John 20, 28, when Thomas says, my Kyrios and my God, Theos. Uh, that's the highlight. It's that same word. So as we watch Kyrios, as we track it, um, we see something very interesting. Because Matthew, through, through the leper and what I'm going to show you in a moment, he, he's expanding the, the listener's understanding of, of who's favored by God, who's in and who's not in. Um, and he connects this with Jesus being recognized as Kyrios. Look, he, the first time we hear it is the leper. The second time we hear it is the Roman centurion. We'll talk about that in a minute. We hear it about those who want to follow him, and he talks about lordship. We hear about it uh, from the disciples in the boat when they're in trouble. Lord, save us. We're perishing. In chapter 9, we're going to hear it from the two blind men uh, who he says, do you believe I can do this? They say, yes, Kyrios, yes, Lord. So pay attention to how Matthew uses that word through this gospel. And the next thing he says, if you were willing, you can make me clean. That word is telo. And I've, I've taught about this a lot in healing ministry because uh, if you were willing is how we translate it in English because we need to make a translation. But the Greek word is multi-layered and it means to volition. Yes, I will. But it also means um, I, I'm determined to do it. It also means that I desire, I love that, I desire to do this, even I love to do it, to, to love a thing, it, it says, is a literal meaning of, of Thelos, um, of uh, Thelo. So, this is huge for us. When we come to Jesus, know that we don't come begging, we come to the one who says, I'm I'm willing. I love to do this. It's my delight. It's my delight. And this should really affect our approach to how we pray and how we pray for others. The next point I want to make is this is very interesting, and we could easily miss this. Jesus touched him. By touching him, ceremonially, religiously, Jesus would be unclean. But without any hesitation, he touched him. Not only does this show uh, the, the compassion of Jesus and therefore that compassionate outward momentum of Matthew's gospel, but there's something even bigger going on here. Remember uh, early on in, in chapter 5, uh, we saw that Jesus uh, came to fulfill the law 
but he's not under the law. Jesus is greater than the law, and Matthew's doing that right here because Jesus was fully aware that ceremonially the law would say he was unclean, but he's greater than the law. He's greater than the temple. We see Matthew will tell us that in, in chapter 12, and in chapter 12 he'll also say he's greater than the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew's Jesus is growing steadily throughout the gospel, but pay attention to how he's growing in these, these, these two chapters that we're looking at uh, today and next week. And then here's something really interesting. He says, go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Christostom, one of the early church fathers, he wrote this, the leper, when cleansed, should not entrust the recognition of his cleansing or healing uh, to private judgment, but show himself to the priest. So there's a practical level. By the way, I really believe in this. When we're training people on journeys of compassion and we say, when you're praying for a condition that you can't tell, you know, maybe it's diabetes or maybe it's high blood pressure or maybe it's cancer. Um, when you pray for them and they say, oh, I feel healed. I feel all the pain's gone, everything. You celebrate with them and say, now go to the doctor and get it checked out. So there's that very practical side to this. But I want to touch on a few more things. St. Jerome said this, Jesus sends the leper to the priest first because of his, Jesus' humility, that he may seem to defer to the priests. Secondly, that when they saw the leper cleansed, they might be saved. Or uh, if they would not believe on the Savior, that they might uh they might be without excuse. So there's another practical. But then we have, again, this third level, this spiritual water-to-wine reading. And uh, and St. Cyril, one of the early church fathers, he sees, he sees a real deep meaning where Jesus said, go and present yourself and make the offering that the scripture calls for. Well, he's referring, in Levitical law, he's referring to Leviticus 14, and I'm going to read the passage to you. Uh, The priest is to go outside the camp and examine them, the lepers. If they've been healed of their skin disease, the priest shall order that two live, clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop be brought for the person to be cleansed. Then the priest shall order that one of uh, the birds be killed over, over fresh water in a clay pot. He is then to take the live bird and dip it together with the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn, the hyssop, the blood of the bird that was killed. Seven times he shall sprinkle the one of the cleansed of the defiling disease and then pronounce him clean. After that, he's to release the live bird into the open fields. The priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, the thumb of the right hand and the big toe of the right foot. Well, what has that got to do with Jesus healing the leper? Well, Cyril points this out, and I'll quote him directly. 
Observe how perfectly Christ depicts these things for us. He's seeing a water-to-wine reading. By the living bird, you may understand the living heavenly word. By the blood of the slain bird, you should understand the blood of our suffering Lord. The running water signifies the life-creating gift of baptism. The sending of the living bird outside of the city teaches us to abandon this world. By the anointing of the leper's right ear, hand, and foot, we are taught that we must be in contemplation and in action and in our way of life in touch with divine things. In episode three of this year's season, uh, Brad talked a lot about learning to uh, find Christ throughout all of Scripture. And here I think we have an example of how the early church did it. Let me give you one more quote from that book I mentioned earlier from Olivier Clement. The ultimate meaning of the Old Testament is revealed in Christ by symbol and typology that discern in the persons and the events of the Bible figures of the incarnate word and his work of salvation. The context of Christian symbolism is the incarnation. Now the whole of the Bible is one moment of the incarnation. So Jesus is always operating on multiple levels. Um, you know, I, I, I've read that for years and years and never seen it, never seen it. Uh, but as I began to study from the centuries before, many centuries before our time, and see the depth of revelation and understanding. And so now I see, isn't that interesting? Not only was he showing humility, not only was he giving the priests an opportunity to recognize who he was, um, but he was through that pointing to the great eternal meaning of his life and crucifixion and resurrection. Okay, that's the leper. We'll try to go a little quicker on the rest of them. I want to talk about the centurion. And uh, that's verses 5 to 13. Uh, when he entered Capernaum, the centurion came to Jesus, appealing to him and saying, Lord, there it is again, Kyrios. My servant is dying at home, paralyzed in terrible distress. And he said to him, I will come and cure him. The centurion answered, Kyrios, I am not worried, uh, worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes and to another, come and he comes and to my slave, do this and the slave does it. When Jesus heard him, he was amazed and said to those who followed, Truly I tell you, uh, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now pay real close attention to verse 11 and 12. I tell you, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, and let it be done for you according to your faith. And the servant was healed at that very hour. <laughs> so just like the leper, 
The next example is someone outside the camp. The centurion was was part of the hated Roman system. Uh, he was like the, the most apparent right in front of them. I, I, let me just read to you a little bit um, from Harper's Bible Dictionary. The centurion's task fell into two basic areas. In combat, the centurion was responsible for implementing military strategy and leading the charge into battle. Away from the battlefield, the centurion administered discipline in the ranks, mediated interpersonal conflicts among men, provided security and protection when called upon, supervised police actions in occupied area, and most notably for our purposes, oversaw executions. As a general rule, these were done by sword for Roman citizens and by crucifixion for non-Romans. Centurions were the front-line representatives of the hated Roman occupiers. So who does Matthew present as the second one to receive and the second one to recognize who Jesus was, Kyrios? It was a centurion. So I want to point out a few things. The first is, Jesus obviously is amazed at his faith, but, but I see a link here between faith and humility. And I want to just say something about that. I've been thinking about it a little bit the last few days. I think humility is a key in faith. We've had a wrong idea of faith. We, we've focused on ourselves. Have I got faith? Have I got enough faith? Lord, increase my faith. Help me with my faith. Help me. But, but you see, we're not called. It, it's a very kind of self-conscious, full-of-faith approach that we have, especially if we're, we're facing a, a, a real significant issue or, or healing. But the key is to get our eyes off ourselves and onto Jesus. And that's what I see in the centurion. He, he, he says, I, I'm not even worthy to come to my, to my house. And when I read that, I go all the way back to the Beatitudes because I said everything goes back there. And what's the third Beatitude? Blessed are the meek, the humble, the gentle, for they shall inherit the land, the promise. See, healing's part of the land. Humility connects us uh, to the very essence of the kingdom of God and of its king, Jesus. Humility moves us right into how the kingdom operates. That's why we, we don't strive to minister healing. That's one of the biggest things in our in our teaching people about healing. I, I tell them, relax, relax. There isn't a right and wrong way. You don't need to have enough faith, enough concentration. Really, I think it takes humility to just rest in faith. It takes humility sometimes to receive healing. I'll, I'll never forget, I was in Seoul, Korea, and uh, there was a, I had a team there, and we were praying for hundreds of people. And I prayed for this man, rather distinguished fellow, I recall, who had uh, had terminal level liver cancer. And he said, I don't have a long time, but Jesus is going to heal me now. And I started to pray, and I prayed a short prayer for him. And then I was about to pray a bigger prayer. And he said, no, no, you're done. I'm healed. Well, I did what I always do. I encourage you, go go to the doctor, etc. Well, as as things worked out, I was back in Seoul, Korea, only two months later. 
And I was preaching at the church that that man was from, and I had no idea. And I was in the pastor's office having a cup of tea before the service. He said, oh, by the way, do you remember this man? Sure. He said, he's one of our elders. He's completely healed. You see, he didn't have to strive. He stopped me from any striving. So that's what I see in in this this centurion, a humble faith. St. Augustine said, what made his faith great? It became the greatest from the smallest, that is, from humility. By viewing himself as unworthy, he showed himself worthy for Christ to come not merely into his house, but into his heart. And look at the contrast. Remember in uh, Luke 7, where Simon the Pharisee puts on this dinner, I think for show. Jesus was very popular, and so he brought him in, and there was this whole exchange with the immoral woman. And Simon received Jesus into his house, but not into his heart. And he really, there there was no exchange made. Here we have the opposite. One who said, I'm not even worthy for you to come to me, but just say the word. So why did he say that? Well, secondly, he obviously recognized Jesus' authority. And he describes that. He says, I know what authority works like. And I see it in you. It... it, When he said, simply say the word, no one had ever done that. Jesus had never just spoken a word. It was profound faith, and he recognized the authority that Jesus had. Um, The centurion was under Caesar's authority, and so when he spoke, it was with the authority of Caesar. Um, His command was obeyed because of that, and he recognized that Jesus likewise was under the authority of the Father. Now, this will continue to be developed in Matthew more and more and more until we begin to see that Jesus' authority is not just uh, from God the Father. Jesus is God. We're going to look at that in a few minutes when we look at the, the storm. So, it's interesting thing about authority. Jesus has got all authority. He demonstrated it with the crowds. They recognize his authority in his teaching. He gives authority to the 12, the 72. At the very end of Matthew's gospel, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. He gives it to us. The only point I want to make here, folks, is he gives us authority so that we'll use it. And as we use it, it grows. Moving along. That's a whole other topic for another day. I want to look again at at what happened here. It's like the great shift. Um, The centurion had understood more than any of the Jews the nature of Jesus and his authority. Uh, So when Jesus heard him, he was amazed and said to those who followed, Truly I tell you, no one in Israel, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. Did you know, by the way, this is the only time in Matthew's gospel that he ever says Jesus was amazed. Very interesting. So what's he doing? Matthew is stressing the uniqueness of the centurion's faith. He's underlining the movement of the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles, to the whole world. And now we come to this great shift passage Verse 11 and 12, I tell you, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, before we go on, I have to remind you what I taught you a couple of weeks ago about rhetoric. Jesus used rhetoric all the time for shock effect, to wake people up. He spoke in purposeful hyperbole or exaggeration. Um, but but we see this movement with the Gentiles. It started with Matthew's account, didn't it, in, in chapter 2? Who were the first outside people to witness the nativity? It was the three magi, Gentiles. Now, when Jesus said this, can you imagine how shocking it would be to his Jewish listeners? They lived with an ethnocentric view that was so strong. They were the chosen people. They were the ones who had access to God through their pedigree. And now Jesus says that, and, and we're moving toward more and more reaching out. And it, and it culminates, of course, in the Great Commission. Go to all nations. Um, he says it actually even before that in, in uh, chapter 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to all nations. So this would have been just a shock to them. But it was through this centurion saying, Curious, Lord, and then expressing, I know you have authority, that Jesus said, Folks, get ready. You're going to be amazed at who's with me and who's not. Kind of looks ahead to uh, the next famous centurion in Acts 10 and following into 11 with Peter and the centurion. And in Acts 11, it says, and they praise God saying, then God has even given to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Remember in chapter 7, they said, Lord, Lord, we did the stuff. We did the conferences. We did the healings, we did it all, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. It's the same principle. He's saying here, your pedigree doesn't matter. What matters is relationship. Okay, I want to look briefly at uh, verses 16 and 17, looking at healing in terms of the suffering servant and looking ahead to the cross. That evening they brought to Jesus many who were possessed with demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and cured all who were sick. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. Matthew was quoting from Isaiah 53, verse 4, and it's a prophetic picture of the cross. He's not focusing on, on atonement. He's focusing on healing. And we'll develop that more later in this series. But let me just say a few things. Matthew is emphasizing, again, that Jesus' ministry is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And we've seen that from the beginning, he he speaks with more quotes from the Old Testament than any of the other gospel writers. When the kingdom fully comes, we know there'll be no more sickness, no more sorrow. Therefore, Matthew sees Jesus' healings as a foretaste of the kingdom. Uh, I love to use the expression heaven now. Jesus brought heaven now. This is a foretaste, and Matthew was recognizing this. That's why he 
quoted these Isaiah verses. The passion of Jesus opens our eyes to see that on the cross, the Lord drew up all sin and all sorrow and all sickness and suffering. He he drew it up into himself and he bore it with us and for us, but not instead of us. Again, I'm just giving you a teaser for number of weeks from now when we look at the crucifixion. For Matthew, the healings pointed beyond themselves to the cross. The cross is the lens of understanding the significance of Jesus' words and actions. We're going to see this clearly in a few weeks in the parables. So it's interesting because we see here that, uh, let me find the verse again, he he bore or took our infirmities or took our infirmities and bore our diseases. Um, <clears throat> what we're seeing here is Jesus bearing diseases and infirmities, carrying them. He's bearing the 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 uncleanliness of the leper. He's he's bearing the sickness of the centurion's servant. He's he's bearing carrying. Uh, the sickness of the woman, Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus' whole life, and not just his crucifixion, can be seen as a fulfillment of the suffering servant. That's a whole theme in Isaiah. He's willing to carry away our physical, social, and spiritual sickness. We're going to see him with demonic men. He carries their spiritual sickness away. John Calvin said something very interesting about these two verses. There is more in this one line of the Gospels to support and comfort us under our diseases and calamities than in all the writings of the philosophers. Matthew is establishing that Jesus' healing was largely focused outside the camp. It was focused beyond the expected. It stayed that way. In fact, if I jump over to to Luke, we'll we'll see with Zacchaeus, the tax gatherer, and he says, I'm going to come to your house. We see him healing prostitutes. We see him healing the unexpected. Well, I'm going to finish with this. Jesus calms the storm, starting at verse 22. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. A windstorm arose on the sea, so great that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was dead calm. And they were amazed, saying, What sort of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have, <clears throat> we have here a terrific example of the three readings or levels of Scripture. For years, for years, I've read, I've taught, I've heard other people's teaching about the literal and moral readings of this passage, uh, and really with very few variations. The literal reading is, which is, remember, the point or truth being conveyed. 
uh, that Jesus had authority without limit. Um, and, and I often did see this progressively. I saw this as Matthew's progressive revelation of the true nature of Jesus, that, that we first see him as a teacher, then we see him as a healer and an exorcist, one who drives out demons, and Jesus is continuing to get bigger and bigger. So I, I've understood that for a long time. The moral reading how can this make me more Christ-like, is that Jesus remained calm in the midst of the storm. Because he has authority in every situation, therefore, I can trust him. Uh, There's no need uh, or any purpose to me being afraid in any situation. Um, When I've taught for a bunch of years— to make a point about God calling us to, to take risks and go out. I've taught that the, uh, um, when Jesus gave us authority, which he did in Luke 9 and 10 and in Matthew 10, that, that when he said, why were you afraid, that, that in one sense he was saying, you could have done that. I, I still think that there's an element to that, but, but there's something more that has come alive to me. So we have the literal and the moral, and I probably haven't said anything that's new to you in the last three minutes because we've all heard teaching at that level. But now, at the spiritual level, as I continue my journey of reading, learning to read, with a water-to-wine understanding, this passage has been opening up. I've been thinking about it again and again and again for about two weeks. It just won't leave me. And it's spilling over into all kinds of other things. There's a new depth that never occurred to me in over 45 years reading this passage because I'd never sought to go beyond the literal and the moral reading. So I'm learning to go slow. I'm learning to spend time asking the Holy Spirit to take me deeper and sometimes a higher perspective, just two different metaphors, really, into what he has put into the passage in front of me. I'm learning to just be quiet. And uh, sometimes I find myself, it's like he puts me into the scene. But a lot of the time, I'm just, I'm just quiet. And here's what has been going on for me. From that, that literal and moral, you know, that he's got authority, I don't need to be afraid. But now it, he's taking me beyond the understanding that Jesus had authority over creation. Uh, but rather that I'm interacting with Jesus in terms of him being in creation. Here's one more quote from Olivier Clement. St. Augustine said that the cosmos or world is the first Bible. The book of the cosmos and that of the scriptures match each other since they have the same author. Both of them find their revelation in Christ, who after writing them, made them his body and his face. Creation reveals Christ, and Christ is incarnate in creation. But to say that that creation 
is Christ is to fall into an error. It's called pantheism. And, uh, and that's error. Creation isn't Christ, but he is fully alive and expressed in creation. So more than exercising authority over creation, in this moment when he stilled the wind and the waves, he was revealing that he is fully connected to creation and that he holds it all together. And so, of course, I had to go to one of my very favorite passages. This is from the great Christological hymn in Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. In him, Christ, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Present tense, in him all things hold together. Let me give you two other passages. Romans 1, verse 20. Paul wrote this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. And lastly, Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, he created the universe. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. I love that passage. Christ radiates the glory of the triune God. Who Christ is, is at the center of every created thing, of all creation, both visible and invisible. Let me say that again. Who Christ is, is at the very center of all things created, visible and invisible. So it seems to me that this episode in the boat is a window into an eternal, unwavering reality. Christ is in the elements of the storm. He doesn't just have authority over them. He's in them. He holds all things together. He holds the storm together, the wind, the waves. This is why he has control over the storm. Now, I think this is a, a window, if we'll contemplate it, this is a window into the whole nature, the whole movement of the cosmos, because it's the movement of Christ. Let me read Colossians again. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things. In him all things hold together. For a lot of years... There's a verse in John 4, it's verse 35, where Jesus says, lift up your eyes and see. Uh, the fields are already white unto harvest. And I know it's an evangelism scripture. I know that. And we're at the, and it tells us the nature of, of the harvest. That's the literal. And, uh, it tells us to, to not say four months till the harvest. That's the moral. What do we do? How do we live Christ like? But the spiritual side of this 
kind of that deeper level uh, has has sat with me for a long, long time. And I just recently came across a quote, again, from Origen. We've had him three times today, I think. Jesus is asking his hearers to lift up their eyes toward the fields of the scriptures and toward that other field where the word is present in every creature, however small, so that they may perceive the whiteness and the brilliant radiance of the light of truth, which is everywhere. I think that if Scripture interprets Scripture, Hebrews 1, 2, and 3 interpret that. So if Christ created all things, and if he is the one who holds all things together, then the world is itself an incarnation of the triune God, where God and man are fully united in Christ. Creation and the Creator are fully united. So for me, this means Christ is very literally everywhere. This is a a further aspect of, of his invitation to me to abide in him. He is all around me. He is all around us. As St. Augustine said, creation is his first Bible. I'm going to stop there today. But I hope that gives you an example of my own journey of moving through these levels to the the water to wine. And uh, you have something that I've just shared out of my own heart. You have an example from St. Cyril of of how uh, go and present yourself according to the sacrifice that Moses said how in Leviticus. Uh, 14, you have an example there of, of a deeper meaning. So my encouragement to all of us is, as we keep going in Matthew, we recognize, we don't gloss over things. We don't think, oh, this is just about these healings, and I know these healings. Everything is there for a purpose. Everything has been put there by the Holy Spirit, and he is waiting to reveal that to those who are looking for revelation. God bless you. We're going to get connected again in just a moment uh, as Tim and I will talk through uh, some of the ramifications of what I've shared today. God bless you. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comment section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, uh, thank you for that. <laughs> I'm I'm admitting now that I'm a little frustrated because uh, there was so much good stuff in there that I was too busy taking notes in my Bible uh, to actually write down a lot of questions. So we'll see what we got here. But uh, also, I had jotted down a couple questions, and like all good teachers, you answered them before I even got to ask them. But mm. um, I really enjoyed that teaching this week, and I'm I'm actually looking forward to. I make notes right in my Bible on my app, and so I always look forward to stumbling across them the next time I'm reading that passage. So when, next time I come to Matthew eight, it will be that much more of a rich experience. So thanks. Uh, before we get into my questions, you mentioned during your teaching an event that's coming up that I wanted to just take a yeah. moment to plug. So friend of the podcast, Doctor Bradley Jerzak. 
uh, is going to be joining us uh, at a special time uh, next Tuesday, uh, August 10th at 11 a.m. Mountain Time. And he's going to be talking specifically about you. You'd ask him to speak specifically about inerrancy, uh, and that's coming out of a book he's just written. Uh, the, so we're titling that time. I think it's inerrancy, infallibility. Uh, well, what was it? I should I should remember this stuff. I'm going to mark it. I think it's inspiration, uh, infallibility, and inerrancy. What the heck? It's <laughs> perfect. Classic that was that Brad. was Brad's yeah. title. <laughs> that's good. It's very catchy. Um, but that's coming out of this book that he's written, and I see you brought it into the studio today. Do you want to just plug that real quick as you well? Bet. I'd be delighted to. Uh, I got an early copy because I got to write a little bit of a thing at the front. So, but it has just in the last week or so mm-hmm. been released. Hold that, hold that up so people can see either it an ebook or a paper book. And uh, it's you know, Brad's written so many books, but first he wrote uh, more Christ-like. God, then mm-hmm. more Christ-like way, and now more Christ-like word. This might be my favorite, and I mm. love the other ones. Wow. It is, it's rich, uh, it's re- it's deep, but really easy to understand. When I say deep, it's not in that academic style, yeah. but there's the academic meat, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah, and I think that regular listeners or viewers of the podcast recognize that in Brad, where, you know, he, he delivers material in such an accessible way but you come away just going whoa that just completely changed my my viewpoint on this stuff yeah and it goes hand in glove with one of the purposes of this matthew series which Mm -hmm. is helping us to read in a whole other way which i I talked about today but this this is an invaluable tool yeah so uh Two things. Get the book. Uh, we'll throw a link actually uh, into the uh, podcast notes and stuff uh, for you today so you can just jump right to, to Amazon or wherever it is that you're going to buy that. Um, but secondly, come join us on August 10th at 11 a.m. Mountain Time. Uh, you're going to have an opportunity to interact with Brad in terms of just typing questions into YouTube or, or Facebook so that uh, he can answer your questions right there on the spot. So that's why I'd really recommend you be there live. If you can't get there live just because you're working or whatever, uh, rest assured that's going to be available after the fact uh, in our collection on YouTube. But also, if you're an audio podcast listener, we're going to release that as one of our, our zero dash episodes is what we call them, those bonus episodes that are kind of just slightly outside of the, the current series. So Great. I'm really looking forward to that next week. Uh, all right. A question. Uh, you finished up there talking about the storm and you said Jesus was in the storm. Jesus controls the storm. And I actually was just watching something last night talking about climate change. Uh, and some of the, I, I've seen some responses from preachers and stuff that talk about you know uh, god's in the storm and it's his judgment things like that just goofy stuff uh and just contemplating climate change i don't know if you heard about climate change it's a thing Al Gore uh, yeah. started talking about it about yeah. 20 years ago right after he invented the internet yeah. um and it's getting worse there are more and more of these what, storms what, what gore is saying is getting worse <laughs> <No>. <laughs> But we're seeing more and more of these storms. And we uh, hear this just in the last week. We were talking about um, the tornado that hit Barrie, Ontario recently, which was bonkers. Uh, And then the one that didn't touch down, but they'd never seen it before on the central Central coast Coast of Australia. Australia. What is this? Yeah. 
bonkers. What the heck again? Though? Yeah, what the heck? <laughs> We're seeing more and more of these very severe storms that are um, yeah. becoming much more severe, much more common. If God is in the storm, if Jesus is in the storm and controls the storm, how can how do we think about that in terms of what is happening in the climate, what's happening with these severe storms that are destroying communities, destroying lives, mm-hmm. taking lives? How can, how do we juxtapose those two That's thoughts? That's a great question. I've not thought of it, so this is off the top of my head. But at the heart of creation is free will. Yeah. In all of creation, it is the free will of God, um, which re- must therefore reflect a God of free will. Therefore, he is not confined by the scriptures, which I've heard hmm. in the past. Yeah. But uh, within the free will of God comes great joy and great tragedy, right? Yeah. We, we can think of a thousand examples. For, uh, you know, it's beyond, I mean, we may have some listeners who disagree, but for me, and I did a lot of research on this um, about 15 years ago, uh, as hard as I knew how to research, uh, for me, it's inarguable. Uh, man is doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not like, oh, Jesus is bringing us tornadoes and floods. He doesn't do that. But they are not absent of him. He is in everything. He's in everything. And Paul says visible and invisible. Mm-hmm. So what do we do with the invisible world and especially the powers that be? What does that yeah. mean? I, it's too big for my brain. The biggest thing for me in the last few weeks as I've just been thinking about it is is this whole thing of creation as incarnation. Mm-hmm. As if, if God came as man... He came as his creation. And in essence, if you think about it, uh, a composer's music isn't separate from him. It came out of his mm. heart, his imagination. Sure. That's a good analogy. So I better stop there if I got a good analogy. <laughs> um, Leviticus. You you read a passage out of Leviticus 14. Yeah. And I, as you were talking, I'm looking. And for some reason, the one that jumped out at me was something about killing a clean dove over a clay pot with clean fresh water in it or something like that. And don't forget the cedar plank. (laughs) And this and the hyssop and the scarlet yarn. Uh and it's it's very difficult sometimes in our twenty first century uh context to read the book of Leviticus. And definitely for those who are new to the scriptures, new to the Bible, they read (laughs) they read Leviticus and very often, I suspect, next question is, what the heck? Yeah. Uh, so you t- you talked a little bit about how you have, over time, learned to go deeper in, uh, and seeing the Old Testament through through Christ. And you even gave us, um, oh, which was the saint? Uh, saint Cyrus, it was? Yeah. Uh, Cyril? Cyril. Yeah. Uh, who actually began to break down even just some of the symbolism of the different body parts where the blood is going in that passage. In that he 14, saw. That he saw. Yeah. Now, how... How can you just give any practical tools for somebody who's coming at Leviticus? I've seen your library, like you, these quotes from the church fathers aren't coming out of nowhere. They're coming, you've got huge volumes of, of 
resources to pull from. The average uh, reader of Leviticus probably does not have those resources on their shelf. Can you give just some practical tips on how to read some of these Old Testament passages that can be pretty dense, pretty out there uh, for our 21st century context? Okay, that's a pretty hard one because I'm still – I, I feel still like it's baby there. steps. Yeah. You know? But um, there's places – uh, Genesis mm-hmm. is for me. It's much easier, you know. Sure. And I and I, again, what I said today, learn to just be quiet, mm-hmm. not just say Holy Spirit, show me, but wait, you know, wait for Him yeah. to begin to come near. And when I say come near, of course He's always near, but you know what I mean experientially. Yes. And um, Jesus, where are you here? Mm. Where are you? Yeah. So I do that. Um, that Leviticus thing, I never I. Cyril, I never would have seen that. Yeah. Um, but the real point there is that nothing's wasted. That Matthew has him go and has him. Jesus did it. But remember, they yeah. select from a of bazillion course. different yeah. things. So, so have him go and what Moses commanded. So mm-hmm. we're in Levitical law. I think that. As I begin to understand that Christ is in everything, but Christ is in every page of my Bible, it slows me down. And I have to just say, Holy Spirit, I need you to show me. He's not going to show me every revelation in Genesis, but what's today's? Yeah. What's today's? So the two things I just heard, just to repeat back summary real quick, I heard you use the word wait. Mm Mm-hmm. And slow down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think those are two just practical things that anybody can do. Yeah. Because sometimes I think that <laughs> the human thing, when you get to some of these passages, is just, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, let's get through. <laughs> let's yeah. get through I, I, was in, uh, I was in Chronicles today, four chapters of uh, First Chronicles. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but no, you got to find <laughs> yeah. some places. Yeah, you got to just but, slow but, down. But also, the scriptures aren't flat. We'll talk about this with, with Brad. Yeah. They're not flat. Okay. And so I read through the Bible every year, and I've even been wondering, maybe I'm going to take a break from that, but I've been mm-hmm. doing it for nearly 40 years. Yeah. But, but I don't read them flatly, and yeah. I do not read the Gospels the same way I read Leviticus. Sure. Um, but, but that, to me, the, the key, slow down, wait, and say, Lord, where are you here? Mm. Where are you? Where are you? Um, I've heard it said uh, regarding Leviticus, a, a very simple thing, which is as you read Leviticus, reflect on how good it is to be on this side of the cross where we don't have to approach God in the same way because of the work of the cross. Is that is that a legitimate point of view? Is that a helpful point of view? I never thought of it. So I don't there you know. Go. All right. I haven't got a really intelligent answer. <laughs> and we have a podcast title. <laughs> There we go. Uh, I don't want to make stuff up to paraphrase my friend. There you go. That's good. Paraphrase indeed. Um, All right. Last question. Uh, Just a simple one, but your your quote from Origin that you gave today about the return, the word returning to the secret dwelling, uh, really struck me in terms of Mm. like if you're not willing to uh, engage with the word at a at a deeper level than 
in, a, in essence, the word's going to leave you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for some reason, that struck a chord with me in terms of, it just reminded me of that passage out of Isaiah 55, 11, which you hear often yeah. quoted, you know, yeah. my word will not return to me void. And I'll be, I'll just fess up. That's one of those scriptures I've really often, it's just a weird turn of phrase. My word will not return to me void. And the the word void, I think is out of the the new King James, but uh, what do you, what do you make of that, that verse out of Isaiah? My word will not return to me void. I mean, it's unfair. I'm not giving it to you in context. It's all right. Uh, I think it might be NASB might be says will not return without accomplishing that for which I sent it. Mm. Uh, so it always comes with a purpose, and yeah. that purpose in this case could be awakening someone, mm-hmm. or just an invitation to be awakened. And Origen says, if if you're not interested, the word, and I would really say the Triune God. That to me, that the work of the Holy Spirit yeah. just kind of lifts. Yeah. And and if if you want two dimensional, then you can, but you are living a very impoverished spiritual yeah. life. The way you just described that reminds me of this. It's it is such a trend. Like um, we are always being invited into something more, uh, and it's always the initiation of the Holy Spirit. Even mm-hmm. repentance. You know, you you quoted that thing out of Acts today, where uh, they said, you know, wow, he's even granting the gift of repentance to the Gentiles, and it just struck me again. Like, oh yeah, sometimes we think it was our idea to get saved. But it only happens as a result of the gift that he's giving us to invite us into, into repentance, into revelation of the word. It's always the initiation of the Holy Spirit, but then it's always our opportunity to respond to that initiation. I love Romans 5, 8, have forever, that while I was still totally uninterested, more interested in my stuff mm-hmm. and the way I was going to give life, while that was going on, he loved me. He reached across time. It wasn't yeah. just that he did something 2,000 years ago. He reached across time wow. and gave himself for me. Amen. Well, that's a good place to leave it. Uh, thank you so much for leaving me lots of gold to find next time I'm in Matthew 8. Uh, folks, I hope you have enjoyed this as much as I did this week. Uh, please join us again every week. We're here Thursdays, 3 p.m. Mountain Time. And uh, we're also going to be here on August 10th. There we 10th, go. There, there it is. Go. Tuesday, August 10th at 11 a.m. with Brad. So please don't miss that. Uh, if you do yourself the favor of subscribing to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash impact nations uh, and hit the subscribe and then the little notification bell that comes up after you hit subscribe, then it's just going to pop up on your phone every time we go live, which we do sometimes. Uh, we, we go live sometimes. Yeah. We don't even know we're going to do it. And we just pop in live to give you an update or something like that. That way you'll get that notification. Even if you're at work and you can't see it right away, you'll be notified that, hey, there's something waiting for me at Impact Nation's uh, YouTube channel there. So I would encourage you to do that. Um, you can also head to impactnations.com slash podcast and hit subscribe if you're an audio listener. Uh, that way it's going to come to your device automatically each week. And, and then you can get it on Facebook well. too, right? Facebook as well. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being with us. We hope to see you again next week. Uh, in the meantime, God bless you. Have a good one. Bye-bye.